It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Monday morning, the 9th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Hospitals will be hoping uh, this morning uh, that there won't be a repeat this week of overcrowding, at least not on the scale of last week, which saw record numbers of people being treated on trolleys because there were no beds available for them in the hospital. Staff have worked tirelessly over the weekend to get patients home or to a different care centre if they no longer needed hospital care. On Saturday alone 400 patients were discharged. You could say they pulled out all of the stops and no wonder given the outrage all of us felt last week when there was almost a thousand patients languishing on hospital trolleys in one day alone. Let's speak to the Sinn Féin spokesperson on health, David Cullen, D, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. All going well. We won't have a repeat of what happened last week. Uh, But if the conditions necessary have been put in place this week to prevent a reoccurrence, should they not have been in place last week, I think is a question many people will be asking today. Well, I think that the thanks and praise has to go to all of those uh, frontline healthcare staff who went above and beyond the call of duty, because the reason why we've had so many discharges and the reason why things have eased slightly is because, because staff have been doing huge amounts of overtime and that's not sustainable. We can't expect people to work 17, 80 hours a week for the next number of months. So it's not sustainable because they've been working long hours since COVID, right through the cyber attack. And if you talk to anybody on the front line, if it's a doctor, a consultant, a nurse, healthcare assistant, radiographer, they're burned out. They can't do any more. And each and every time there's a crisis and, and it seems that the health service is in perpetual crisis. It's those on the front line who are bearing the brunt. So obviously things have eased very slightly, but there, there are still huge pressures in emergency departments. There are still people who are waiting hours on end, if not days on end, in some hospitals and in some cases either on hospital trolleys or on chairs in emergency departments. We heard last week of people sleeping on floors in pain and in agony, and all of that is completely unacceptable. So we had a number of things happening at the same time, Michael. Obviously we have rising sickness in the community. We had very high levels of covid and flu and respiratory illnesses, which put additional pressure and strains on the healthcare service. But we also have capacity constraints, which we've talked about for a long, long time. We don't have the inpatient beds that we need. We don't have enough consultants, doctors, nurses, 
and allied healthcare professional staff. We don't have the diagnostic capacity, which slows down the patient uh, care, and I suppose it, it, it adds to the pressure as the staff are under, but it also adds to the length of time people are waiting, because it can be waiting hours for scans. That slows up then the ability of doctors to be able to make decisions and treat people. Uh, and obviously, those capacity constraints in hospitals is one issue. But again, I think it lays bare the fact that we don't have a proper workforce planning strategy that can enable us to recruit the staff that we need. Because even the, the 1,200 beds that were funded back in 2020, and there's 150 of those beds are still not open. And the reason why they're not open, even though they have been funded since 2020, is because the HSE can't recruit the staff. And we know that right across the healthcare service, we have vacancies, we have about 900 consultant posts which are vacant. So unless we get real about workforce planning, which is substantially increasing training places right across all healthcare professions, and then dealing with the myriad of recruitment and retention issues, we're going to continue to see all of those capacity constraints, lack of beds, lack of staff, which slows, slows down care and it ends up in situations like we saw last week where it's, it's unbearable for patients and also unbearable for those on the front line. And I should say as well that it's not just what's happening in the hospitals, because as you know, Michael, and you've covered this many times on your programme, when you look at what's happening in the emergency departments, you have to take one step back outside of hospitals and look what's happening there. We're not providing the right care in the right place at the right time. We have many people who can't get access to home care support. For example, many people can't access out of those GP services. Some, in some areas and on some occasions, it can take days, if not weeks, to get access to a GP. And that lack of capacity in the community and primary care is also driving up uh, driving up activity in emergency departments because if you can't get access to a GP mm. or you can't get access to community care, then the only option for a patient is to go to an emergency department. And that's creating this perfect storm that the minister is talking about. It's not just a perfect storm of illness. It's a perfect storm of a lack of capacity in hospitals, in community care and in primary care. And all of that converges into your emergency departments when it all goes wrong at the same time. Okay, I think it's probably true to say that the worst performing hospital in the country is University Hospital Limerick. Uh, I think uh, I even heard uh, the clinical director of uh, that hospital describe it, uh, or at least say that other people would describe it as a a basket case. Uh, Part of uh, the solution there is, uh, from today, a new protocol uh, with the HSE uh, instructing paramedics to decide whether they should go to Limerick or to Ennis in consultation with doctors. Uh, That seems like a a U-turn, does it? It does, and I suppose it, it, it shows again that chickens have come home to roost because when they closed the emergency departments and they scaled down the activity in Ennis, in Nina and in St. John's, they were level three hospitals operating emergency departments, operating acute hospital services. They were downgraded to level two hospitals. And what we created in the Midwest was having one single major acute hospital where all acute patients, all trauma cases, all unscheduled care are going to Limerick, and that created what is the worst performing hospital in the country. None of the additional capacity that was promised was put in. It's why, I suppose, people in your neck of the woods, when you look at what's, what's happening in your own area in terms of healthcare and emergency departments, that people are looking at what happened in Limerick and looking at the fact that it is a basket case through no fault of staff, but it's more than that. It's dangerous, and it has been dangerous for some time. We, we, we I think it was last year we had a HICWA report, which again laid bare 
all of the capacity constraints in, in the hospital in Limerick and, and again pointed out the unsafe uh, staffing levels but also the unsafe service that we've been given to patients. Mm. Do you but, believe- Limerick is, it, but Limerick is not an outlier. We're mm. having problems now in almost every acute hospital. The pressures are right across the healthcare system. Okay, but is there a solution in these smaller hospitals like Ennis or like Navin? Do you believe that the emergency department in Ennis should be reopened uh, given the price, uh, the, the, the pressure that there is on Limerick? It's very hard to reopen an emergency department in a hospital when it's closed. I certainly believe that those hospitals can provide surge beds, which over the last number of weeks they have been doing. Mm. I certainly believe the staff can be redeployed to ensure that we have as many people as possible working in emergency departments. Right here and right now, there are very few options open to the HSE over the next number of weeks. Obviously, over the last number of years, all of the capacity constraints should have been dealt with. But right now, over the next six to eight weeks, we have to prioritise urgent care. We have to make sure that people in emergency departments are getting the best possible treatment. That is going to mean, Michael, and it's happening already, cancellation of of elective Mm. procedures. I believe that that could have been mitigated if, if we had made better use of private hospitals where more elective procedures could have been done. But obviously in hospitals like Waterford, which is a better performing hospital, there isn't patients on trolleys. Very quickly, very rapidly, a decision is made to cancel elective procedures and use day beds and, and medical and surgical ward beds as inpatient beds. Probably the best performing hospital in the country. Um, but uh, if uh, we talk uh, a little bit more about the smaller hospitals, if we could for a, a moment or, or two longer, David, uh, because uh, you said there that the infrastructure hadn't been put in place in Limerick before they closed Ennis and some of the other smaller hospitals in that region. Uh, the Minister was saying exactly that. Stephen Donnelly, when he was speaking to the 6-1 News on Friday evening, and David McCullough asked Stephen Donnelly about the situation uh, in Ennis, uh, now that that's going to be used for uh, ambulance patients, uh, whereas uh, the protocol had been to take everybody to Limerick, there is this U-turn of sorts. Uh, and he asked the minister uh, if that made the case for keeping Navin open. And if you bear with me, we'll hear a little bit of what Stephen Donnelly had to say. I think Navin is a very good example of wanting to get it right. Um, the proposal on Navin was that Navin would close uh, before additional capacity was put into the ambulance service, uh, was put into the community and was put into places like Our Lady of Lourdes and Drogheda. Uh, I intervened because what I want to see is it done uh, in a way that the capacity is put in place first. I, I do think um, the ability to bring patients to the, the medical assessment unit in Ennis uh, is it a positive development. Right, that's the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, speaking to RTE's 6-1 News on Friday. David Cullinan, the Minister seems to be saying Mistakes were made in Limerick, but we're going to learn from those mistakes in Navin. I'm not sure what the learning is from what the Minister just said. I mean, I'm very concerned that uh, the plans to close the emergency department in Navin will, will continue. And if you look at what happened over the last number of months, I think any reasonable person would say that what we need to do is increase emergency department capacity, ensure that we're scaling up capacity where we can we have a number of options, and we always had a number of options in relation to Navin. The option of closing the emergency department was, was obviously something that flowed from the small hospital's framework. And it was said at the time that that could only happen if additional capacity was put in place. That small hospital's framework has been in place for over a decade or more. And there's been promises from minister after minister that there would be no movement on closing Navin, even though the management 
uh, of the HSE want the hospital closed, have been pushing for it to be closed for a long, long time. And I know that there are medics in Navin who are saying that the system is unsafe. Uh, and I accept that, that the system is unsafe and, and, and that the service is unsafe. But you can't have it every way where you say, on the one hand, that we need to increase capacity in other hospitals, which doesn't happen. And that's a clear failure on the political system over many, many years that that additional capacity wasn't put in and then say that we need to proceed with closing it. So for me, the best option would have been to actually look at what additional capacity does Navin need to provide a safe service. Because I've made this point to you several times. There are very few emergency departments over the month of January and over the month of December that were operating at safe levels. In fact, most emergency departments are, are operating at unsafe levels. We've heard from emergency doctors and their associations. We've heard from consultants directly that the conditions in those hospitals are inhumane. We have patients lying on floors. We had uh, an RTE camera showing trolleys lined up in emergency departments where staff simply weren't able to do what they need to do. So there's very, very unsafe levels. The emergency departments are operating at 100% capacity in almost every hospital. And while Waterford is an outlier to some extent, it isn't without its problems, Michael. We still have people on chairs waiting for days or hours on end. Hospital management will concede that while they can make rapid decisions to transform and repurpose beds that were used for elective procedures and recovery beds for patients into inpatient beds, we still have people waiting long periods of time. So I think what we need for, for your area and I think what we need for Navin mm. is a rethink on what we do. And under no circumstances should there be any discussion about closing the emergency departments, considering what happened in other emergency departments, because I don't believe any of them are fit for purpose to mm. take patients away from, from Navin. And some and would say it's death by a thousand cuts as, as well, that it's step by step, piece by piece, uh, the hospital is being downgraded and of course now patients are being taken by ambulance to elsewhere and we've heard and the exactly concern. And that's what ha- exactly what happened in the Midwest. Mm. And I would imagine that if you were to talk to senior management in the Midwest region, they would say that it would have made a world of difference if Ennis, as one example, was operating at a level three hospital. Nobody is saying that all of these hospitals have to operate as level four major trauma centres, but they can operate as level three hospitals. And that's what uh, Navin is, and it should remain in my view. And the concern is, uh, as we've been hearing as well, is that it may be unsafe in Navin, but you're shifting the problem uh, from one that is unsafe in Navin to Drogheda, for example. The consultants made their views known. Uh, Again, if you could bear with me for a second, I want to go to a different hospital in Mullingar, which is uh, the Midland Regional Hospital, and we have this ambulance protocol now where patients are being taken elsewhere. And Dr Murat Kinsa is the clinical director in Mullingar, and he's been telling the local radio station there, Midlands 101, Three about the impact that that protocol at Navin is having in Mullingar. Historically, we used to get patients from the region of um, um, Kinnegat and a little bit east to that, but now we're seeing that um, ambulance drivers um, are bringing us patients from, um, as far as that boy, Dunboyne, Trim, um, which we haven't seen in the past, and, and we're monitoring that closely, and uh, we've been working um, to see if we need additional resources there. But there is certainly, it will certainly have an impact and it has already started to have an hmm. impact. Okay, it's already having an impact at Mullingar. So I take it uh, some of uh, the numbers we've been told about patients who will be taken elsewhere are probably uh, bigger than we've been led to believe. 
I think that's the case, and there's huge pressures on the National Ambulance Service, and that's one of the concerns that, that people in Navan would have and, and those in the surrounding counties. We're hearing of ambulances parked outside hospitals, almost operating in many ways, Michael, as hospital trolleys uh, for hours on end, not being able to transfer a patient from an ambulance into a hospital because we don't have enough beds. So that's a real concern for people in Navan that the, the National Ambulance Service is stretched as it is. And what we have at the moment right across our hospitals are all of those pressures. So if I was the Minister for Health, and I think this is a watershed moment that we really need to take, Michael, and not accept the, the, the level of capacity constraints that we have in our hospitals no longer. So we need to have a real plan over the next number of years as to how many beds we need to put into the system, the levels of staff that we need to provide safe staffing levels, which the INMO have been talking about for some time. We have to have a new workforce planning strategy that trains more healthcare professionals and deal with the recruitment and retention issues. But we also need to look at primary and community care. We're not giving the right care to people in the right place. We have community intervention teams that are meant to provide care for people with chronic illnesses in the community. It's not happening. We have out of our GP services, which is collapsing. We need to be looking at training more GPs. And in my view, look at salary GPs. GPs working directly for the state that can provide out of our services. All of these are part of the solutions which we now need to put in place over the next number of years. Because if we don't, we had a summer trolley crisis uh, this year. We have a summer trolley crisis uh, last year. We have a summer trolley crisis this year. And that's not fair on patients, and it's also not fair on all of those healthcare staff who, as you acknowledge, pulled out all of the stops over the last number of days to ensure that things ease a little bit in emergency departments. But it's not sustainable that staff are doing the level of overtime that the that currently exists is putting huge mental pressures and, and physical pressures on staff in my view which is not sustainable mm. Yeah I, I know a, a lot of people worried about how long uh, they'll be expected uh, because it's going to be a, a long winter isn't it and we have this perfect storm of uh, the three different respiratory illnesses that are, are going around and that uh, the pressure could continue on hospitals so does that mean that the extra work will have to follow if we're going to stay on top of it uh, it it's something, as we all know, we've been talking about for 25, 30 years at this stage. And as a national emergency in 2006, the problem has got twice as bad since then. But does it need to be this way in one of the wealthiest countries in the world? No, it doesn't. And I've I've and posted some of the solutions in terms of more investment in primary and community care, really more GPs. We need more community intervention teams that can deliver care in the community. We need to obviously deal with the fact that we can't get home care intensive care packages for many people because the staff are not there. Mm. That's down to the levels of pay in terms and conditions of employment for home care staff that we've talked about for a long time. But we need to spend more, do we? We need to spend more on health than we are at the moment. It's partly spend, but it's also about how we spend the money. So one of the big reforms that Shalanta Care promised and that I want to see happen very, very quickly is amalgamating the community health organisations which deliver primary and community care with hospital groups. So you have a single tier of management. You have a budget for each locality and each regional health area that then looks at where uh, the investment needs to be made. In some areas, it might be we need more left-down recovery beds so that patients can be discharged quicker from hospitals. Obviously, some hospitals need more inpatient beds. Uh, you can then uh, make sure that staff are deployed where they are needed most, whether it's in community services or primary care in hospitals. So I think that part of that reform is really important, that we have 
not just uh, healthcare systems operating in silos where community services are operating in a silo uh, separate from acute hospitals. And we also have too many layers of management. So I think of those regional health areas that would deliver single tiers of management and eliminate many uh, layers of management is something that's uh, necessary and needed because that would create more efficiencies in the system. But we can't get away from the fact that we don't have enough beds, we don't have enough consultants, nurses, allied healthcare professionals in hospitals, and we don't have enough GPs. We have to train more professionals, recruit them into the public system. There's no shortcuts, there's no easy solutions. Yes, it's going to take investment, but it's also about reform and good management across our healthcare system. Okay. Well, I don't think anybody wants to see a repeat of uh, what we experienced last week, Uh, although we're not there yet, uh, it would seem. But we leave it there for the moment, and thank you indeed. Thank you very much uh, for joining us on the programme today. David Cullen and Sinn Féin spokesperson on health. Michael Reed on LMFM. There's more people living in emergency accommodation in this country than there are living in Ballina. Uh, there's less people living in Tremor than there are on uh, the homeless uh, list at this stage. If you took the entire population of Wicklow, uh, it would be less than the number of people who are homeless in uh, this country. If you look at a, a town the size of Cavan, uh, there's still fewer people living in Cavan than the amount of people who are homeless in, in this country, living in emergency accommodation. If you go to Enniscorty, where the population is 11,381, it's still fewer than the 11,542 people who live in emergency accommodation in this country. You'd have to take uh, places like Laytown, Bettystown, Mornington, Donny Carney, uh, and combine them in terms of uh, the population, which would give you 11,872 before you'd get more people living in that area than uh, you would uh, the amount of people who are homeless in, in this country. And I say that to put it into perspective because it, it's the worst uh, figure ever which uh, was published on Friday. It's an amazing amount of people who don't have a place to call their own home. Let's speak once again to Father Peter McVerry, Jesuit priest and long-time campaigner on uh, the homeless issue. A very good morning to you, Peter. Thank you indeed morning, uh, for joining us on the programme. Uh, we're beyond being shocked, of course. Uh, it's a little bit like the hospital trolley figures, isn't it? Um, they become numbers uh, and hard to put it into perspective or to keep it in perspective. Yeah, it becomes just normalised. Uh, I mean, we've been, we've been hearing the same thing every month now for, for, for many years. And the, the number that you quoted of homeless people is not the total number of homeless people. Mm. That number does not include people sleeping rough. It doesn't include women and children in domestic refuges who cannot return home. It doesn't include several thousand asylum seekers who have been given permission to stay in Ireland but can't uh, move out of direct provision because they can't find anywhere. And it doesn't include an unknown number, probably many thousand, who are sofa surfing because they can't find uh, their own accommodation. So we could probably double that number if we were to talk of the uh, the total number of, of homeless people. And as I say, it's depressingly similar. I think you should just record my interview and every month when the figures come yeah. out, just replay it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> nothing changes except that it keeps getting worse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking exactly the same thing myself, uh, but uh, that's despite all of the promises. Um, it, 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 have yeah, we got, have I, I we got the wherewithal that. to deal with it? 
I appreciate the, uh, the, the, the difficulties the government have. They're, they're, they're up against a headwind. Construction costs are going up. Labour costs are going up. Uh, I can appreciate the difficulties, but there are things that can be done and should be done. I think there are things being, not being done that should be done. Uh, such as the Kenny Report. The Kenny Report is now lying on somebody's desk for the last 50 years. And the Kenny Report recommended controlling the price of, uh, of building land. Now, the cost of a house, once about a third of the cost of a house relates to the cost of the land on which it is built, and sometimes it's much more than a third. Mm. That means if the Kenny Report were to be implemented... A house that today costs about €450,000 would cost really €300,000 right. to become much more affordable. That means people could move out of private rented accommodation, free up private rented accommodation. That would bring rents down and it would prevent people becoming homeless because they can't afford to pay the rents. Okay, but is it just an issue of affordability? Because a a lot of money has gone unspent, hasn't it? 500 million uh, the government didn't spend last year that was allocated for housing. That's right, and they're carrying it over into into this year. Uh, the the other factor, apart from implementing, uh, uh, taking actions that they should be taken, I think there is a crisis of urgency within the department. I don't see any sense of, of urgency. One of the proposals is that they're going to make it illegal for to advertise an Airbnb property unless it's properly registered and if necessary have planning permission and they themselves reckon that could that could bring 12,000 uh, Airbnbs back into the rental market but that should be done as a matter of urgency the government should be sitting uh, you know 8 hours a day 7 6 5 days a week to pass that legislation and get it into uh, into action mm, because the other it... thing is modular homes the government have promised 700 modular homes I w- I'm suggesting they go for 5,000 modular homes. Modular mm. homes are wonderful. They're of very, very high quality. I've always been supportive of them. They can be purchased for 50, 60, 70,000 euros, uh, and they could be used. You could let those out or even sell them to somebody for maybe 40 euros a, a, a week which would uh, make a profit for the government mm. and provide lovely accommodation for people who are currently without a com- proper accommodation. We asked a, a number of times last week on the programme what the government uh, should do with uh, the €5 billion euro windfall it has received in tax receipts, uh, predominantly due to uh, corporation tax, uh, which uh, they say uh, is not uh, a stream that you can rely on uh, so that you shouldn't put it into uh, ongoing costs but what about once off spending and if that money should be used on building a hospital let's say or put into housing as the case well, maybe uh, of course it should uh, once off uh, tax revenue should should not be spent on, 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 on ongoing spending it should be put into capital spending but as you say they, the government have allocated uh, several billion euros towards housing this year and they haven't been able to spend it all so simply allocating more money to housing doesn't seem to be the answer. The answer seems to be in some sort of uh, dysfunctional 
uh, uh, within the system, dysfunction mm. between the, the Department of Housing and the local authorities. I go to the Department of Housing, they tell me there's loads of money for housing, the local authorities aren't spending it. Mm. Then I go to the local authority and they say, yeah, we're told there's loads of money for housing, but we can't get our hands on it. Mm. So there's some dysfunctionality there, whether it's in the relationship between the Department of Housing and local authority or in the planning process or whatever. That's that's making it very difficult. I think the Department of Housing should give <coughs> should give a much more authority to the local authorities to build housing. In fact, we ourselves have come up across uh, come up against that problem. We uh, we had tendered for a, for a, for a, a number of apartments. We have to send that to the Department of Housing. They come back four months later and they want some changes. So we make the changes, send them back to the Department of Housing. They come back several months later and say it's okay. But by that time, the cost of construction has gone up and we have to start all over again with new tenders back to the Department of Housing. So I think the Department of Housing needs to transfer a lot of responsibility to the local authority and give them the power to make the decisions. Okay. Can I uh, ask you about refugees? Uh, Maybe you'd like to speak to people uh, who ask the question, how do we manage to find accommodation for so many people coming into this country when we have such a, a significant problem anyway? Well, we're not finding very good accommodation for people coming into this country. Many of them are put up in, in office blocks. <laughs> in, uh, now they're going to be put up in, uh, in Croke Park and the GAA centres. Uh, so I don't think there's any equivalence there. I think they're struggling to find accommodation both for the, for the uh, income people who are coming seeking refuge mm. and also for, for homeless people. But uh, I know certainly in one area they took over the NESB building. Mm. Uh, it was totally unsuitable for housing anybody, even refugees. Mm. But it was done on, on an emergency basis and would never be suitable for housing homeless people. So I don't think there's any equivalence. I hear a lot uh, that we should be looking after our own first. But my answer is, look, these Ukrainian refugees particularly and many others have suffered enormously and have been far more traumatized by their experience that, than Irish homeless people have ever been traumatized. And so we, we, we have a responsibility and I think it's wonderful that we are taking them in, even if it's causing huge uh, difficulties for ourselves. Yeah, the other to, issue, of yeah. course, is traveller accommodation. Yeah. <laughs> much, yeah. of the, much of the money allocated for traveller accommodation is simply returned to mm. the exchequer. And some local authorities haven't spent a penny on traveller accommodation. Others have been very good at it. But I think that's another area that really, uh, is that's an area where the Department of Housing should put its foot down mm. and tell the local authorities to get on with it. Yeah. I think we probably had a, a, a number of national uh, emergencies uh, discussed there in the last uh, 10 minutes. Uh, but... Uh, as long as things uh, are unacceptable and we continue to say they're unacceptable, uh, it seems that they continue to be the way that we do it. And you'd wonder if unacceptable really means acceptable because uh, it's like the hospital situation, as I said earlier on, that we uh, look at it and say, God, that's dreadful. And um, we go on about our business, as was the case before. Yeah, we've lost our sense of outrage. Uh 
and it's very difficult to know. People feel very powerless to do anything about it. We've had marches, several marches with thousands of people mm. demanding a, a housing reform, but it hasn't really produced very much. Uh, it's, so I think people just feel pretty powerless about uh, trying to bring about change. That's the, uh, that's, I don't know. It's, yeah. Close to three and a half thousand children homeless uh, and uh, that record figure now, 11,542. It really is shameful uh, and something for us uh, to contemplate. Is it acceptable or not? Uh, but we leave it there for the moment and thank you as always, Peter, for joining us on the programme. It's always much appreciated. Father Peter McVerry, Jesuit priest and long-time campaigner on homelessness. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let me bring you some of the comments coming to us. Jim in Navin has been texting. He's uh, texting very early this morning as well, Jim. And thank you uh, for getting in with your message so early this morning. He says, Michael, surely uh, the no-walls in the HSE who thought closing uh, the A&E in Navin must feel so foolish and ashamed as the medical service all over Ireland is in a total mess. Upgrade, Navin, and surely other parts of uh, the country are extremely necessary. Uh, It's necessary to upgrade in Navin and elsewhere. So time for the HSE and the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, to get their act together and do the job that they're being overpaid to do. Because, in my opinion, I don't want to hear any more spin or stating the obvious. It's time for action, says Jim. Thank you, as I say, Jim, for the early text of the programme this morning. Paddy Duffy was in touch with us early this morning, indeed, a couple of times uh, for that matter. And he, he says, I'd like uh, to see the station put a, an FOI in, a Freedom of Information request, on, on how many managers uh, there are in the HSE, not active clinical staff, and how many clerical staff are employed to carry out their diktats, as he puts it. He thinks that would be very interesting. Uh, uh, he also says uh, that uh, the country is in a mess and uh, the Taoiseach has been around the cabinet table for almost 12 years in one ministerial post or another. Uh, default position is for tax cuts for his party support base. Uh, and then he has uh, the neck to call other parties and individuals populist. Thank you, Paddy. Uh, somebody else in touch with us saying, now Navin and all of the other small hospitals may be used, we're told, uh, and uh, the body that inspects hospitals during uh, the e- year uh, write up a, a report. It seems to end up in the bin, overflowing, and they've gone to ground. Uh, what are, are they doing about all of this? Uh, and uh, keep fighting for the hospital, says Mary in Trim. Thank you, Mary in Trim, uh, for your message to the programme today as well. Uh, another text comes to us from Claire, who's in County Meath, and she says, Good morning, Michael. It just seems we've no government. They should be bending over backwards for the patients and the hospital staff. What is wrong? We're allowing thousands of people come into the country uh, and are they going to do anything, uh, says uh, Claire. Thanks uh, for that, Claire. Jack says, Michael, GPs used to open daily and evenings from 6 to 8 in the evenings and Saturday mornings as well. Thanks uh, for that, Jack. I'm sure some people will remember that to be the case. I'm sure some people will remember that you'd ring the doctor and the doctor would call to your house, that you'd ring the doctor and somebody would answer the phone <laughs> and speak to you, a human being like, and they'd speak to you and say, oh yeah, I'm going to ask the doctor to drop in to you later on. The doctor would drop in later, maybe stop and have a cup of tea and seem to have plenty of time, whereas you can't even get to see a doctor now. Uh, you can't, can't be, uh, become a new patient uh, in a GP's practice. Uh, and if you are uh, a patient, um, 
that if you've been attending a GP, it can take a long time before you can get an appointment, as all of us know at this stage. What has happened in the world? Margaret, thank you for your message as always. Margaret says, I'd like to know why the top people in the HSE and the Department of Health are still in their jobs, being paid their huge salaries with the state they've allowed the health service to fall into if it was any other entity they would be sacked the whole lot of them I've read what whistleblower Shane Corr has said about both bodies in uh, the independent medical uh, I think it is uh, for the last three weeks uh, and it's a scary read no, no wonder uh, the health service is on its knees. Uh, it'll make your blood boil as it did mine. Nobody had to account for the state of uh, the health service without accountability or consequences for bad management. Things stay the same or they get worse, as is the case with the health service, says Margaret. Very strong thoughts. Thank you indeed uh, for sharing them with us uh, this morning. Uh, a different Margaret than what's apping us, saying, Michael, I'm listening to the news and how the hospitals are sending people who need to be discharged back to care homes. I'm sure it's hard to get staff for private nursing homes as they're underpaid. You won't get family members to care for loved ones at home because the carer's allowance minimum minimum as it is. Um, it's being means tested and people have to pay bills so the Government is a disaster. It's as simple as that, Margaret says. They won't look after the medical personnel from doctors, nurses and carers in a hospital setting or a home one for that matter. Thank you indeed. It's a long time since we've had so many messages come to the programme in a morning and it's great to be hearing from so many people. Uh, Somebody else uh, WhatsApping is saying the hospitals in England are just as bad. BBC News uh, in uh, the morning uh, showing some terrible scenes obviously from hospitals in England. Uh, Deirdre and Kel says Mike Navin's A and E should be kept open. They need to money into Navin uh, big time says Deirdre and thank you as always for your message to the programme today Deirdre and Kells. Uh, another call that comes to us from Geraldine says it's unbelievable they're you turning on this protocol in Ennis why do they have to go ahead with Navin if that is going to be the end result if uh, they're learning that what happened in Ennis and in Limerick was wrong well, then maybe they should reconsider what they're proposing doing in Navin because it seems to be identical. And maybe they should actually learn from those mistakes and keep Navin's emergency department open, put money into it, staff it, resource it and make it safe if it's not safe. Well, thank you indeed to Geraldine for your call to the programme. Thank you to everybody who has been in touch. If you'd like to make comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 041 that's 0419832000 if you want to ring us today. You can text or WhatsApp 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing, uh, the latest eyeball survey has uh, been published and uh, tells us uh, that Ennis, or I beg your pardon, <laughs> I do beg your pardon, uh, that Nace is the cleanest town in uh, the country. Let's speak uh, to Connor Horgan, spokesperson with Eyeball Irish Business Against Litter. And a very good morning to you, Connor, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. I uh, hope you'll forgive me mixing up my hospitals with my tidy towns. Uh, but uh, it is Nace that uh, has uh, taken 
uh, the top place uh, on uh, this league of 40 towns and villages uh, around the country that you've been monitoring. Uh, bad year for Dundalk, uh, one of the dirtiest towns in uh, the country at uh, number 34, isn't it? Uh, but what is it uh, that uh, would differentiate between those two? We'll talk about Drogheda and Navin undoubtedly in a few minutes. But what is it that makes Nace so clean and Dundalk so dirty? Well, if I look at the reports, Michael, it's quite clear. I mean, Dundalk suffered from the presence of several heavily littered sites. And they included a litter black spot at Castletown River at Dundalk Bridge. Um, they included very heavily sites, littered sites at the car park at the rear of cost cutters and the waste ground and clothing bank um, at Tesco. Now, um, or the recycle bank at Tesco, I should say. Mm. And, like, there's no similar sites in NACE at all. NACE is talking really about cleanliness rather than about litter. It has almost left litter behind. It's trying to make every site as, as uh, pleasant as possible. Um, whereas, unfortunately, Dundalk, having been a winner in many years ago, you'll remember, Michael, mm. it has receded now to battling with heavily littered sites. Right, uh, and, and you've identified what you call a litter black spot in Dundalk as well. Yes. Uh, that, that's right. Um, that was uh, Castletown River at Dundalk Bridge. Um, some of the litter appeared waterborne, but there were large items which appeared to have been dumped, such as large toys, quad bike. There was very heavy le- levels of a wide variety of litter items over a large expanse of the riverbank. I'm quoting there from Antashka. Mm. Um, and it's, it's those sort of heavily littered sites we're seeing fewer of, thankfully, around the country. That has been a big difference year on year. We've been constantly calling on local authorities to concentrate on the very bad areas. This time they appear to have done that. Unfortunately, not in Dundalk. Okay, and it's uh, as a result of people dumping and uh, illegally dumping, but from what you're saying, it's also uh, because uh, at the Recycle Bank, for example, items aren't being collected, it would seem. That's right. And we've, we've forever had a problem with overflowing recycle banks and people thinking that it's OK if a bank is full to just leave your stuff pretty much anywhere. It isn't. Um, these have to be managed by the local authority, particularly at peak times. Um, we've seen improvement around the country on this. There's no question. Um, but unfortunately, this time around, uh, that wasn't the case in Dundalk. Mm. Uh, what is the problem there? Is it that people are leaving their bags beside uh, the recycle banks uh, because they went to the bother of packing up clothes or whatever it is and yeah. went down there and then it was full and thought, well, sure, they can take these when they're emptying the uh, the, the bank itself. That, or, that's right. Are they, yeah, evidence of them stuffing them between the units, for example. Mm. But is that people's fault or should these things be emptied more frequently? Maybe, but there's never an excuse for leaving your litter around. You right. know? Mm-hmm. That litter can, can, can be strown around all sorts of areas. We see it. We see in the case of bottles, broken bottles over time. It could be quite dangerous. So um, I think you have to have regard for, you know, at peak periods, it can be quite demanding on a local authority to be emptying them. They've improved their game on this, though, most definitely. Mm. And, um, but it does need some degree of tolerance from people. It's not a license to litter just because a bin is full. OK. It uh, wasn't all bad in Dundalk, of course. Um, it wasn't, no. Um, uh, two sites deserve a special mention. Great work and significant improvements at Wrightson's Lane, which looked really well, with colourful artwork improving the overall appearance. We'd like to see more of that around the country. The way- 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Base ground at St. Nicholas Avenue and Maxwell's Row, um, that was previously littered and a problem but not so anymore. That has been cleaned up. The Newry Road was grade A, um, but not enough grade A's, to be, to, to be honest, Michael, uh, in contrast to most towns. OK. Uh, most towns are clean to European norms. Uh, you have other towns like Drogheda, which is moderately littered, Dundalk littered, and just one town in the country that you consider to be seriously littered, as you define it. Uh, it would seem overall like a, it's a good report. It is. That is an improvement because, you know, we used to often use the term litter black spot, Michael, when I'd be talking to you. Mm. And that was a category for a town or a city as well. And thankfully, in recent years, even with COVID, when litter levels had, had, had risen, we haven't seen towns branded litter black spots in a while. And in this case, as you say, there was only one area um, branded a, lit- a seriously littered area. That was Mahan and Cork. And that was just seriously littered, just with a little bit of improvement, it would be littered. So we're definitely seeing a positive tide. And, um, you know, generally, you know, three quarters of our towns now are clean. That says mm. something. Uh, Dundalk is an absolute outlier. Um, and just as Drogheda was last year, thankfully Drogheda has improved somewhat, um, a marked improvement, actually, according to Antashka. There's only two heavily littered sites out of the 10 sites surveyed. Mm. So that's a, that's a significant improvement. And, and e- even, though, for, uh, even though Drogheda is 32nd yeah. on the list, Dundalk 34, uh, there's a world of difference between them uh, because of how they're being defined, uh, I take it. Drogheda moderately littered, which is much better than just littered. Well, it, it, need, it, it need not be a huge difference to between, but there is like a, there's, there's a line under which you become littered um, as opposed to moderately So it may not be a, 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 a big difference. We see Dundalk is the best of the littered areas as well, if you see in 34. So probably with a bit more work, it would be in the moderately littered category. But that is some distance away from clean. Mm. So, and that's really where these towns should be. And, you know, Dundalk is also an outlier in having won the league and having now deteriorated to littered status. Okay, hopefully that will focus minds. Yeah, uh, and there's been uh, huge improvements in Drogheda, as you say. Uh, I think uh, you'd been critical in the past of some of uh, the recycled centres, as is the case now in Dundalk, but they seem to have cleaned their act up. Yes, that's right. The recycled facilities at Balls Grove and Trinity Street, they were both very good. What a transformation is uh, was the comment from Antashka. That's at the Trinity Street one. It had been heavily littered, not so this time round, 
all aspects in good order, a complete absence of litter in the environment. So, you know, that's fantastic to read. Um, if Drogheda could work on the two bad sites, Marsh Road and Marley's Lane, it would be clean. Right. Uh, they're, the they're the worst parts of the town. They're the, they're the two bad sites. And um, if, if the uh, local authority could concentrate on them, and there's evidence, like I said, that local authorities around the country are honing in on the bad sites, that happens in Drogheda, we'd see a much improved uh, performance in 2023. Okay, I, I take it uh, that there has been focus given to some of the problems in Navan, which is now considered to be clean to European norms. Yeah, not the problem that we've highlighted, Michael. Yep. <laughs> St. Patrick's Park is again a litter black spot. The last time we spoke, I think it had improved slightly. So, um, you know, the report describes it as being subject to dumping Again, deteriorating to litter black spot status. Um, large household items, evidence of burnt items, dumping on a large scale. Not a pretty picture. Um, thankfully, that is an outlier. Um, there's no other heavily littered sites in Navan, so it is absolutely bringing down the town in our rankings. Okay. Uh, are you seeing a, a change generally uh, around the country uh, because of COVID lockdown reopening uh, and uh, a change in terms of how people are going about their daily business and fa- the, the face mask, for example? I take it there's few of them on the streets. There's fewer face masks, absolutely. You know, coffee cups we spoke about last time, still a very popular form of, a very widespread form of litter in, in one quarter of all that we survey about 500 sites and a quarter of them had coffee cups. That's very high. Um, so that's still a significant litter item, and I think, I think there is need for action in terms of a coffee cup levy to incentivise people to move to reusable cups. But hmm. uh, it's been a, a conversation uh, for a period. And cigarette butts, uh, I take it, uh, continue to be a, a problem. Uh, reading last week, I'm sure a lot of people were interested in the idea of the cigarette companies having to pay for cleaning up cigarette butts. Is that the uh, type of approach that should be taken to a problem like that? It, it does, but that's not saying that we'll see increased cleaning, you know. Um, obviously, it is the polluter pays and it's right. And we're always giving out about cigarette butts for the harm they cause to the environment, entering the seas and so forth. But, um, you know, the devil's in the detail. Whether we see supplementary cleaning of, uh, of the streets for butts, I doubt. I think the solution is in probably more butt disposal bins and... Um, you know, some innovation in terms of packaging whereby a smoker can carry the butt along with them for a period in a reusable package as opposed to the, the throwaway packs that haven't changed since time immemorial. Okay. You know, that's awkward yeah. for the smoker, but I think it will require an effort like that to rid our streets of this item. All right, very good. Uh, and it, it does seem, uh, I take it uh, you're encouraged by uh, this uh, final report of uh, the year uh, and the improvements that you've seen around the country. Most definitely, particularly local authorities tackling the hard areas. That's going to stand us in good, the bad areas. That's going to stand us in good stead. And, you know, I've said in, in the release, uh, Michael, this is a virtuous circle. If the streets are clean, it, it begets cleanliness. There's no reason to think we, we should fall back into the bad old way. OK, and uh, I know that uh, you're also concerned about plastic bottles and cans and sweet wrappers and all of that sort of thing as well. Uh, it's all for us uh, to think about as we go about our, our daily business and keep our own streets clean because we all have a role in this as well. In, in, indeed. I think green consumption, if we embrace that agenda, we're going to have to make special efforts when it comes to particular times of 
types of litter and how we dispose of them. Okay, Connor. thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, once again on the programme. Always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, thanks for your time, as I say. Connor Horgan, spokesperson with IBAL, that's the Irish Business Against Litter Group. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, thanks to Margaret, uh, who was back in touch about a text uh, she sent in earlier uh, about a whistleblower in the health service and uh, the stories that she's been reading about in the Irish Mail on Sunday. Uh, thanks, Margaret. Uh, I should have uh, recognised uh, what you were saying in the abbreviated version in your text. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, couldn't think for the life of me when I saw it, uh, what it was. Uh, but thanks uh, for clearing that up for me, at least. Uh, Tony is in Navin, and Tony says, Michael, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Navin Hospital was nearly closed because of a mouse a few years ago. Where is Hikwa now with health and safety? Thanks, uh, Tony, for that. Uh, it it uh, was the coffee shop, I think, in the hospital uh, that was closed because of rodent activity, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but uh, there certainly was a problem with rodents. Uh, and uh, I think uh, there's a lot of people who would think that there is a problem with health and safety with uh, the way people are being treated uh, on hospital corridors. Uh, now, Anne has been in touch with us about litter and she says she was walking past uh, the Louth County Council building this morning and the amount of litter around the council building itself was appalling. If they can't pick up the litter around their own building, there's no hope, she says. Uh, well, thanks uh, for sharing that with us, Anne, and indeed for your text to the programme. If you'd like to make comment, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 041-983-2000. If you want to ring us, that's 041-983-2000. Text or WhatsApp if you want to text us, 086-1800-658. That's 086-1800-658. And you can always email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, let's stick with uh, the issue of hospital overcrowding and speak to Anthony Staines, Professor of Health Systems in uh, the School of Nursing in DCU. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this Monday morning, uh, a Monday morning that sees 274 fewer people being treated on hospitals this week than was the case last week and a lot of that's to do with uh, the discharges that took place over the weekend apparently 400 people on Saturday alone have been sent home from hospital either sent home or onto nursing homes or other care institutions uh, but I suppose the question is if they were able to do that over this weekend and discharge as many people as they did this weekend. Was the overcrowding that we saw last weekend necessary or not? It wasn't necessary, but you wouldn't have fixed it by placing an unsustainable burden on staff. Our hospitals already run at close to 100% occupancy all the time, which is extremely high by international standards. Most countries say 80%, 85% tops. Most our hospitals tend to run 97%, 99%, 104%, 110% capacity all the time. And you you can get people to really work ridiculously hard for a few days in a crisis. But if you make them do that all the time, they just break. You have to, Mm. you, you, you can't run the whole system on the basis of grinding your staff into the ground because you pretty much end up with no staff very quickly. Mm. 
And it's a, a case of uh, firefighting, isn't it? Uh, rather than planning for what should have been expected. I mean, people like you uh, have been saying uh, for many years uh, that this needs to be looked at because it's an annual event uh, where we have what was described in 2006 as a national emergency that has just got twice as bad over uh, the intervening years. Yeah, we, I mean, one of my colleagues put it very nicely. They said um, the problem with the Irish Health Service is that most of the staff are in the wrong place. So the vast majority of staff are in acute hospitals. And in consequence, most of the patients are in the wrong place too. So we haven't got the staff, we haven't got the bodies in the community, we haven't got the bodies and resources in general practice. So our hospitals fill up very quickly with people who need care are not getting it out in the, out in the community because there's nothing there to give them care. And we're, we're finding... We're hitting the same thing now. We're seeing people who could be managed in the community if they had the services, if they had the right pieces in the community, they could be managed. Mm. But the pieces aren't there. Mm. Uh, That's really the important thing that's missing. uh, um, Is it as straightforward as that? Uh, Because undoubtedly the 400 people who were discharged from hospital on Saturday had to go somewhere and they were able to find places for them. And Nursing Homes Ireland seems to be saying there's a a thousand empty beds in nursing homes around the country. I think we can make more effective use of the resources we have. You you can always do that. But it does come down to the health service is still the wrong shape. So the Health Act is written around providing acute care in hospitals. The the whole health insurance system is built around providing acute care in hospitals. That's not the problem. The problem is long-term disease management in the community, long-term health maintenance in the community, access to social care, access to other routes besides turning up in the emergency department when you need urgent care. In many countries, if you have a a, a sort of semi-acute problem, you can go to a pharmacist and the pharmacists are allowed, encouraged and supported to prescribe for you within some limits. Here, you've no choice. You go to the GP. GPs are seriously underfunded, seriously under-resourced. There aren't enough of them and they don't have enough staff and there's no plan to change any of that, which is horrifying when you think about it. We have community services which are disconnected from GPs except when there are good personal relationships, but there's no organisational relationships. And as one of the headlines, one of the papers put it on Sunday, you know, the, the, the information systems we have, uh, you wouldn't use them to run a fruit and veg shop. You couldn't run a fruit and veg shop, mm. the information systems we have in healthcare, because you wouldn't know, you know, how many carrots do I have? Where are they? Mm. How many do I sell? Right. How many people want? How many people came to my shop looking for carrots, and there weren't any carrots? We don't know any of that stuff for right. Irish healthcare. Right. We uh, do for for many other countries. Uh, and uh, is that a uniquely Irish situation? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. We've been talking about unique identifiers for healthcare since certainly seriously since two thousand. That's twenty three years ago. We've had a working demonstration of them since two thousand and nine, two thousand and eight. Uh, they haven't been rolled out. Mm. They're not. They exist apparently somewhere, but they haven't been rolled out. Um, we we don't have working information systems for hardly anything. You know, we we collect a lot of information from ad hoc registries of various kinds, mm. but we we can't. We're not keeping on top of it, 
Uh, we have no idea what the unmet need for care is because we don't we don't look we don't ask, mm. and that's that clearly suits some people in the system. Okay, uh, and you're always going to get a, a surge in demand at different times of the year, particularly in winter in the health service. And we're being told that it's a perfect storm, and that other countries are finding it uh, difficult to, to cope with the demand on services as well. But every, every country is finding the winter challenging. But there's only two countries in Europe where the health service is falling apart. One is ourselves, and one is the United Kingdom. The NHS has fallen apart because the social care piece was deliberately cut by the current government about eight years ago, nine years ago. So they're stuck with the same problem we have, that there's nowhere for people to go. Ours is falling apart because the structure we have is not fit for purpose. And this isn't the organisational structure. It doesn't matter if there's one HSE, if there's seven health boards, it's all irrelevant. What's relevant is what's available to patients on the ground. And we still don't have free access to primary care. We don't have a wide range of routes to receiving care. Everything goes through either general practice or the emergency department. And both systems are falling under the strain, despite incredible levels of work from all all my colleagues in medicine, nursing and the other disciplines. Mm. They're still falling. Okay, and despite the fact that there is this surge in respiratory illness at the moment, you believe uh, that we should be better, better prepared, better able to cope, uh, and uh, of course RSV, um, the flu, yeah. and COVID are all feeding into that. Are we doing enough to prevent the spread of disease? Uh, no. There's been talk of wearing masks on public transport again and that sort of thing. Is that the type of thing that we should be doing? That would, would help, but we're, we're tinkering around the edges of a broken system here. So, yes, we should be wearing masks in public transport to protect ourselves and to protect other people. We should be wearing masks in crowded indoor spaces. We should have rules on ventilation and air filtration, none of which we actually have. Um, but, but that's, even with, even if we did that, you know, we, we would still not be able to cope. I mean, System, you're meant to build systems that can cope with expected demand. If, you, if the traffic grid in Dublin collapsed, every morning and every evening in rush hour and you were stuck for eight hours on the roads trying to get in and get out, that wouldn't be accepted for a minute. Mm. Winter pressure is equally predictable. We know it's going to happen in winter. It's happened in winter for as far back as anyone living can remember and actually a good deal further back. There's been this surge of respiratory illness in winter. This is nothing new, but you, you you build a system that prepares for it. Okay. Uh, COVID is, of course, uh, uh, an illness that uh, is not just uh, exclusive to the winter, that uh, it it spreads all year round. Um, There seems to be a lot of COVID around at the moment. None of us are able to watch it as closely as we would have with all of the daily updates and the figures and so on. But it it really seems to be a big factor uh, in this hospital overcrowding issue at at the moment. How concerned are you about COVID? I think I'm, I'm very concerned about COVID. Um, we, we don't know what the long-term effects of COVID will be, but what we do know is far from reassuring. So we know that it increases your risk of heart disease. We know it increases your risk of stroke. We know that a proportion of people have substantial long-term symptoms after COVID. And it, we think, it was not certain, but we think that the more often you get infected, the more likely you are to have these long-term symptoms. So there's a huge 
push. You know, the logical thing to do would be to have a huge push to control cases because there's no upside to having COVID. Mm. You know, there's no be- there's no benefit to to having it. Even if you're fortunate enough, as, as we were before Christmas, I got COVID, but I was okay. Mm. You know, I, I was out for about a week and then I was back again. And that was lucky. I mean, I was delighted. Mm. But even if you're fortunate enough to get it mildly, there's no upside to that. You know, I didn't gain anything from being out sick for a week. No, well, obviously it's horrible. <laughs> I had it myself and I had what I think they call a mild dose of it, uh, but I didn't yeah. find anything mild about it at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's not something that you want. Um, but why are people getting it in such big numbers? Is it because people haven't got their boosters or, or what is the reason behind it? There's a couple of things going on. This is one of the most infectious viruses we've ever studied. Boosters help, but they don't, they don't do much to stop transmission. They don't do much to stop you getting it. They do something. So it, it is useful. But what they really do is they stop you getting into hospital with it. They stop you dying with it. And that's why boosters are, are absolutely worth it. But we haven't got that. We have ama- the vaccines we have are amazing and incredible and astonishing. But what they're, they're not doing is stopping transmission. They're not stopping spread. They're probably reducing it a bit. Things would probably be wor- be worse without it, and we're seeing. I think that's partly what we're seeing in China mm. that there's a sizable chunk of their population completely unvaccinated, right. and COVID is rampaging. And you know, people are. We don't know what the figures are because the Chinese government is simply not releasing. It's very hard to understand how they've gone from, from one extreme to the other, from that zero COVID policy to now. Uh, letting on really that there is little or no COVID uh, in the country or uh, what COVID yeah. is there is not having a negative impact and not reporting deaths and so on. There's also a concern, is there not, uh, that because uh, they're not monitoring the disease uh, that it could lead to, to a new and dangerous variant, uh, which is why Europe uh, is moving to try and protect citizens uh, from people coming in here from China. It's certainly a risk. At the moment, the, the Chinese have started depositing samples in the international repositories. And at the moment, what's circulating in China is pretty much what's circulating globally. Um, there's, there's a strain, which is the main strain over here, which is the main strain in China. And there's another strain which is beginning to spread in the United States, which is occurring in some of the coastal cities in China. So please God, there won't be a new strain out of China. But we don't, we don't know. You know, this, it really is pure dumb luck if there is one, or pure dumb luck if there isn't one. Mm. And that's not a great way to conduct public health policy, but that's the truth. Right. We're, we're all sitting saying prayers that we've seen the worst COVID control us. Mm. But we, we just don't know. Nobody, I don't know if we've seen the worst or if there's potentially worse out there and I don't think anyone else does either. Okay, uh, I'd say by the sounds of things you'd be glad to see the spring uh, give, <laughs> yeah. given the, all that we're hearing uh, I don't know, the amount of people who have said to me God, you don't want to get sick this year uh, and you can understand it when you see the overcrowding in the hospitals uh, and you were mentioning uh, G, uh, GPs uh, prescribing for people uh, but you may not be able to get your drugs now, <laughs> over 200 drugs not available in the country. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say to be very careful of is if you're not well, go to hospital. My uh, my, my ED colleagues are afraid that there are people out there having strokes, having heart attacks and presenting late because they're afraid to go in. 
And I think they'd all say, come in. They'll do their best for everyone who comes in. So don't be afraid to come in. But you're right, we have a problem with drug supply as well, which is, this has been building for for years. I mean, this isn't a new story. There, there's been discussions about this, again, to my knowledge, since 2010, and maybe before that, for all I know. Um, and it's just kind of hitting hitting us now again, because the a lot of the drug supply comes from a fairly small number of factories, many of which are in China. And the supply is being disrupted by that. So there, it, there is a message there about diversifying drug supply. It's not about don't buy the Chinese medicines. Nothing in the world wrong with Chinese medicines, they're grand. But it is about having more than one factory producing them, having more than one place producing them. So if something goes wrong, in you know, as, as can happen in any large chemical process, something goes wrong in factory A or factory B, has a flood and is closed for six weeks. Uh, you, you don't run out of whatever it is. Professor Anthony Staines, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you indeed for taking the time to speak to us today. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, Michael. Much appreciated. Bye-bye now. Anthony Staines, Professor of Health Systems in uh, the School of Nursing in DCU. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you've ever gone to the airport on uh, the 100X, I'd be very surprised if uh, you weren't to tell me that the bus was half an hour late. Uh, it goes on into the city centre then. And the reason, actually, if you've ever been on the 100X, and it wasn't a half an hour late. Uh, maybe you would tell us because uh, the reason I say that is that the bus is a half hour late every day of the year. We, we need to engage with all the stakeholders as regards buses. That's the private co- coach Thank operators. I know I've had people in my constituency talking about bus errand as well and Thank the 100X and that there are particular difficulties that it's not necessarily making the timelines and that's something people Thank from Dundalk would use to make uh, flights at the airport. So uh, we have a huge amount of issues that, that we need to deal with across the board. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD. Rory O'Muraku raising this issue in uh, the doll before the Christmas break. He, he's on the line with us now. And uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, this bus is notoriously late, isn't it? Yeah, no, no, it is completely. Like, a number of people had been on to me. And in, in fairness, one gentleman wrote a really straightforward letter and detailed every point to a degree. He put it far more eloquently than I did. I sent it directly to Bus Aaron and here now. You know, they accepted they were not maintaining the timetable uh, that they had stated. And they said some of this was down to the increased amount of traffic that were on the roads, you know, probably post-pandemic. We can accept a bit of that in the sense we've all seen that. We know that there have been, you know, some mornings you've seen that, you know, whether it's the M1 or the M50 or the Port Tunnel, you know, accidents and such have, have held everything up. But the fact is, what they also said is that they are revisiting the timetable. First of all, we need a timetable that they mm. can actually deliver upon. But now, how, there are other- I mean, that, that doesn't add up because uh, quite often the first bus out of Dundalk, uh, uh, half four or wherever it is, uh, and certainly after that, uh, half five, half six, uh, leave half an hour late. Yeah, well, look, obviously, I, I imagine, uh, you know, you, you, you're running these buses in a rotor, so therefore what you're doing is, 
you're losing it very early in the day and then you're Yeah, but if the first bus that. if the first bus is yeah. late, then they're all going to be late. And there's no, the problem. No, no, they're all going to be late. Well what they're stating is that it's it was increased traffic that is causing this. But here see the a, fact that mm, they no, no, I know yeah. I said I mean it's supposed to be a professional bus company. There's bus companies all over the world, aren't there? Uh, who deliver a service that runs on time. Yeah, look, and we've seen that there are issues in relation to, let's say, bus companies across, you know, private and public that can't get enough bus drivers at the minute. See, if that's the case, that's something that needs to be um, addressed. But like, the fact is they have said that they're going to address the timetable. So that tells me that they do not at this point in time have the capacity to deliver on the timetable that they're stating. There's mm. also, in fairness, that um, the gentleman pointed out the fact that some of the difficulties were the fact that the queuing system, when you were actually get on, getting on the bus, leaving Dublin Airport, that it took him 50 minutes to get on the bus. You know, you were talking about a double-decker that might not necessarily suit between people putting in and um, paying for tickets, between people putting uh, luggage wherever it would fit. Mm. And obviously there are people who are, you know... Again, not necessarily, like some older people and people that would, you know, logistically be be impacted, that it's, are going to find it very difficult to take their mm. luggage, which they're going to have coming from an airport, um, up onto a second floor. And obviously some people would be afraid of obviously, you know, leaving it in an undercarriage, even if there was room from the point of view of just in case somebody wasn't necessarily that trustworthy mm. on the bus. You yeah, know? well, so, I don't know. I mean... Uh, there is no system in place uh, and it's sort of like the survival of the fittest because when you're getting on the bus, if if you're at the top of the queue, let's say, uh, and the bus comes along and you have bags and you put them in the undercarriage, uh, well, then suddenly you're at the end of the queue uh, because all of the people who didn't have bags get on the bus before you and take all of the seats. That's it. So therefore, what you're finding is people just carry it on, which obviously creates its own difficulty. And again, it's a particular difficulty when you're dealing with, with double-deckers. Now, I, I put all his questions. Now, they were all addressed in the sense of answered. We are looking at everything. There was a difficulty as well that um, the bus shelter wasn't uh, of sufficient length and didn't give the protection, given that sometimes you're dealing, obviously, with mm. bad weather, this being Ireland. Um, and, yeah, well, they stated that was a particular issue for DAA, so I will be engaging with DAA in, in relation to that. But, look, this just is a, a system that really needs to be improved. But first and foremost, we need to ensure that we have a sufficient amount of buses and drivers to be able to deliver on the timetable that they are stating. But it's been like that for years. Like, uh, I mean... Uh, oh, no, I accept yeah, that, yeah. And, I mean, working. whatever about the amount of buses and drivers, if you have a bus... Uh, that's scheduled to arrive at half five, let's say, and it doesn't arrive till six o'clock. And that's the same thing every single day. Uh, That's not a question of needing more drivers or or buses. It's a question of changing the timetable and saying the bus will arrive at six o'clock because we know it arrives at six o'clock because it's always delayed by a half an hour. Yeah, no, 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 100%. And see the fact that they say they are looking at the timetable. That tells you that they are looking at it on the basis they can't deliver what they're saying at this point in time. So then show us what, show us a timetable that can be delivered upon. But you definitely have to streamline difficulties where, like uh, one of my constituents is telling me that it's taken him 50 minutes to get on a bus. Like that's hardly his or the other passenger's fault. That's the system that's in play. And I'm not giving out about the driver because obviously they're just operating 
you know, on the basis of how this thing has operated. Mm. So therefore, it's not beyond us to improve all these sets of circumstances. Look, in this day and age as regards technologies and whatever else, that needs to be done. And also have the right buses that make sense in relation to, um, like, as I say, being able to put in um, your luggage and whatever else. And then then let's create a proper queuing system and whatever else. We, we can deal with the, with the other issues, as I say, through DAA, if that's as regards the bus shelter and whatever. Mm. But yeah, you're dealing with something that has never been fit for purpose, isn't fit for purpose. So would it be an idea... Here, like many other aspects of, you know, every system that we deal with in this society in Ireland, let's just get something that's fit for purpose. It yeah. does what it says on the tin. And we've mentioned this uh, quite a, a number of times uh, on the programme over the last couple of weeks because there's all of this focus on public transport. But what's the point uh, in telling people that they have to use public transport if you can't get a seat on the train, for example, or if the bus turns up half an hour late and you miss your flight? I mean, this is a very important service because it's the airport service. But uh, you hear people on that bus frequently ringing into work saying... Sorry, the bus was delayed. I'm only on the bus now and I'm going to be late for work. It has all sorts of consequences on people's lives. And it's been like this for years. Could they not get somebody from Denmark or or Germany where they know how to run a bus service to come over and look at it and tell them how, how to do it properly? I think it's what you're talking about. It's the overall public transport system. Look, we all get the idea and the advantages. And look, we all accept that the cut in fares and everything made it more, you know, made it a more logical um, choice for people. But that only matters if you can deliver a service that can deliver you or me to work at the correct time. Mm. Otherwise, you're delivering nothing. Yeah, so that, of course, that is something that needs here. Beyond needs looked at. That's something we just need to be able to deliver. Now, some of the advantages that we have, let's say, if I'm talking about Dun, you know, Dundalk or, or Drada, and I suppose as regards commuting, is like also the enterprise. And um, but the problem with the enterprise at the minute is, particularly at busy times, it's going to be absolutely jammed. Uh, that's the train system. Now, over the next number of years there is going to be a, a far better system put in place where at least it'll also be operating on, on an hourly basis, which will make more sense from a, a commuting point of view. Mm. Yes, but uh, yeah, buses are, are the relatively easy one. That's the reason the government are promoting and um, people using them. But then, like here, unle- it isn't beyond us. That's all I'm saying. It isn't beyond the ability of government to be able to deliver a bus service and a train service that will deliver for people. That is the only way we are going to get people out of cars. And I agree. See, if we do not, like, I I don't believe we now, we can look at best practice around the world and we can, we we can, we can implement it. And if if from time to time that requires, um, using certain expertise out of here that's that's fine well somebody who knows how to do it like i mean it's just it's beyond i I can never understand why people accept this this is happening for years it's every day Uh, i do actually remember uh, hearing about the bus uh, that wasn't late one day uh, and it left early Uh, i know of people uh, who go to the bus stop late because they know it's going to be late every day Uh, it's a crazy situation and it it's totally unnecessary and the proof of that statement is what happens elsewhere buses run on time they arrive on time there may be blips but for the most part it's not rocket science no no look we we, we all accept that, that there will be particular issues there will be car accidents and um, there there will be things that you cannot logistically allow for but as you said, we have got very used to certain services 
that do not operate on the basis of the timetable and the timeline that they're meant to operate on. And maybe that is the case, that we haven't sufficiently given out about it and we definitely haven't had a case where enough of this has been addressed. So in relation to the 100X, um, it's bus errand, the onus is on bus errand to look at uh, a timetable they can deliver upon and then to look at those issues that were brought forward by my constituent and other constituents as regards where there is room for improvement and there is room for streamlining and that just needs to be done as soon as possible and again if we need to learn lessons that have been learned a million mm. times over across Europe or anywhere else that needs to be done also. Oh my God, yeah, I'm just reading a text here that's come from somebody who says they're a regular user of uh, the 100X and my experience in general has been good although the bus is rarely on time. Uh, they're going to say a recent experience left a lot to be desired. I called to the depot in Drogheda on the Friday before Christmas and asked a member of staff about the service on St. Stephen's Day. I was told normal bank holiday stroke Sunday service. I waited on the Dunor Road from 7am until 8am. No bus arrived when I emailed having missed a flight. No compensation was offered even though they accepted I'd been given the incorrect information out of pocket to the tune of 158 euro uh, and uh, disappointing uh, in I'm uh, very disappointed in, in the way the matter was handled that's a dreadful story isn't it well, well that's absolutely but well, that's incredibly sloppy in relation to communications now it should be made absolutely clear to all staff that they know exactly what um, what timetable is going to be operated, particularly for periods like that, because you're also talking about um, people who might have to make vital weather uh, journeys from a point of view of, as I say, healthcare, mm. business. And, and you're talking about a major time, you know, a holiday time when pe- and a significant amount of people are on the move. So um, not only do you need the airplanes in the air, you also need to make sure that you can deliver a, particularly a public transport system so people can get there. And again, we are trying to um, enable people to be able to take cars off the road or at least take cars off the road partially for a period of time. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, on the programme uh, this morning. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Mead, Rory Murku. Michael Reed on LMFM. Henry Ford is uh, the principal of Skull Nave Column Kill in Toher and is inviting parents to the Monaster Boys Inn on Wednesday of uh, this week uh, for a, a public meeting. Uh, and she's on the line. A very good morning to you, Anne Marie, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. So you want to talk to parents uh, about a review that the Department of Education is uh, taking at the moment of legislation uh, in, in terms of uh, making. Uh, education available to children with autism. Tell us a a little bit more about this review and what you want to say to parents. Good morning, Michael, and Happy New Year to you. Um, you. Michael, I suppose, yeah, now it's not just in relation to autism. The the Epson Act uh, would be looking at the inclusivity for for all children with uh, additional needs to be able to to learn alongside their peers uh, that don't have additional needs. So I suppose I was concerned that this was a wonderful opportunity that has arisen. Uh, Josefa, Minister Josepha Madigan, and I commend her for, for the same, has decided to stop, pause and review, uh, uh, look at the Epson Act, and she's, she's handed us out to parents on a portal on the Department of Education website to look, to hear the voices of parents, students, uh, all stakeholders who are involved within this to get get an idea as to what their opinion is. And I, I, I was really, 
it, it, within my own school, I became aware that parents didn't, even though we had sent out information about it, parents didn't know what this was about. They didn't even understand. Parents who had children with special needs wanted to know more. So we felt it was really important that this came out to the public and that the public were made aware that this, uh, this really good opportunity is there for them, for their voice to be heard. Okay, and you have 15 children uh, in Toher uh, who have additional educational needs, is that right? Well, we, have, we actually have four classes of early intervention for children with a diagnosis of autism, which is where we do a lot of our work. And we have other children within mainstream as well who would have a diagnosis of ASD or ADHD or, uh, you know, different diagnoses out there. And I think it's really important that, you know, we pause and we stop to look at the model that we have uh, in place at the minute and that we are very cognizant of the fact of that, you know, um, that children have a right, I suppose, to, uh, to equal access to the same learning experience as their peers. And that, 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 we, that we also pause and check to see, are we equipping children, as the Act says, with the skills to become independent and to be able to integrate socially in society later on in life? And that's where my concern would be in terms of, you know, segregation, we have to be really careful Hmm. about what we're doing. And you have a a firm belief uh, that all children should be in mainstream classes? Well, I have a firm belief where where it is in the best interest of the child that they are given the right, that they are given the right to integrate and to be included in a mainstream class, the same right as everybody else. Um, and you know, I think that's the, that's the that's the, there will be always be a small cohort of children, and it may not be in their best interest. So I suppose it's looking at the individual child, as opposed to looking at a cohort of people saying this is where you go. You know, each individual child needs to be looked at carefully. So what's in your best interest, and how and you have the right to access the same learning experience as your peers that do mm. not have an additional yeah, And it is for educational purposes, you believe uh, that uh, children should be in mainstream classes when it's possible and uh, appropriate, but, but, but not just for educational purposes. No, the, I mean, the, the main, especially now, we'll, we'll say with a diagnosis of ASD, if we look at the triad of impairment that gives you your diagnosis of ASD, two areas which where the deficit would lie would be communication and social uh, interaction. And, you know, that, that's one of the things that I'm looking at in terms of good modelling for communication, uh, good exposure to social interaction with children of the same age. That's imperative. That's really important. If we avoid that, if we take children away from that experience, it's going to be so much harder down the line after 14 years of school experience, of not not being integrated with the peers. When you come out at 18 years of age at the other side of the education system, what, how then do you integrate with people of your same age? How do you ex- experience the social okay. uh, circle that you're in? If you've, if, if, that, if you've avoided that or if you have been shielded from that all your life. And that's where the question comes for me that we need to stand back now, reflect and mm. review what we're doing at the minute. Yeah, pertinent question at that. Uh, you're asking parents to meet with you on Wednesday in the Monaster Voice in yes. at half past seven. Yes. Anne-Marie, thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, always thank you nice so to talk much, to you. Michael. Thank Thanks you. for the opportunity to talk. Thank, Thank you. you. Anne-Marie Ford, Principal of Skull Nave, Cullum Kill in Toher. That's it for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.